I'm excited to start a new series this morning called James, A Brother's Testimony. James, A Brother's Testimony. James is probably one of the most misquoted, misused, misunderstood, and misinterpreted books in the New Testament. It is definitely the most misunderstood, misused, misquoted, and misinterpreted epistle in the New Testament. I think the only other book that would rival it for being misused, misquoted, misinterpreted, and misunderstood is the book of Revelation. But for the purpose of this series, what we want to do is go chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and preach through this entire letter. We're starting today, and it's going to bring us right till Advent which is the four Sundays of December this year. So it's going to be a long series, but it's going to be a great series. And we're going to uh, make sure that we're quoting it right and using it right and understanding it right and interpreting it right. Introducing the book of James. Who wrote this book? Well, James wrote it, but which James? Well, there's much speculation, but I've concluded, as well as Pastor Joel and many others, that the James who wrote the epistle of James is James, the brother of Jesus. James, who was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. You can read about that James in Acts chapter 15, verse 13 to 14. James was the leader of the Christian church in Jerusalem. And when Paul and Barnabas came back from their missionary journey and said that the gospel has gone to the Gentiles, it was James who stood up and affirmed that, yes, indeed, salvation was for Jews and Gentiles. James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. James was an apostle. In Galatians 1.19, the apostle Paul calls James an apostle because James was a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This James was known as James the Just by church historian Hegesippus. James was known as James the Just for his extraordinary godliness, his zeal for obedience, and his devotion to prayer. And that comes through in James, his extraordinary godliness, his desire to be like his brother and his savior, Jesus, and to obey him and to pray. James was known by the other apostles and by other historians as camel knees because he was such a prayer warrior and spent so much time on his knees in prayer. James, the brother of Jesus, was martyred in AD 62. He was thrown from the pinnacle of the temple, and when he didn't die on impact, he was clubbed and stoned to death. I told this story at length on Easter Sunday in my sermon, Body of Proof which you can listen to online, but let me, just, let me just recap so we know who this fellow is, who wrote this book. Uh, James, the, the brother of Jesus, uh, he was asked by the Pharisees in Jerusalem to convince the people who were following this Jesus to celebrate Passover. A lot of people were converting from Judaism to what would become Christianity, they were following the way of Jesus, and James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. 
And so the Pharisees came to James and said, listen, use your authority and influence and convince those Jews, Christian or not, to come celebrate Passover. We need some revenue in the temple. We need, uh, you know, money coming in because everybody's converting to this, following this Jesus. And so James took the opportunity not to convince the church in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, but when they brought him up to the highest point of the temple to address the crowd that had gathered, James stretched out his hand to heaven and said, Christ himself sitteth in heaven at the right hand of the great power and one day shall come on the clouds of heaven. And the crowd erupted in applause. And when they did, the Pharisees were angry and pushed James off the parapet that he was standing on, which was their plan the whole time, by the way, because when he landed, there were people ready with clubs to ensure that he died. And James, before he breathed his last, echoed the words of his brother on the cross, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. That's a pretty incredible story of martyrdom. And James, the brother of Jesus, was martyred that way. James was skeptical of his brother during his earthly ministry. In John 7 and verse 5, it says that even Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him. They thought he was crazy. They thought he was nuts. And then they saw him walk out of a grave, and everything changed, especially for James. He was converted and became an eyewitness to the resurrected Christ. When did James write this book? James wrote this book in A.D. 44. He wrote it at the beginning of what was called the, the Diaspora. And his martyrdom took place in 62 A.D., so James wrote anywhere between 44 and 62 A.D. James is likely the earliest New Testament writing. And it was intended to be a circular letter, something that would be passed from congregation to congregation, or as we'll see next week in James chapter 1, verse 1, to the 12 tribes. This uh, phrase, 12 tribes, was a euphemism for the, for the true Israel, the church of God. And so this letter was intended to be passed around uh, from church to church to encourage them, to, in, to inspire them to godliness and obedience and to prayer. So James wrote anywhere between 44 and 62 A.D. And why did he write? What were the themes that he addressed in the book? Well, James has been uh, variously considered an, apo uh, sorry, an epistle or a sermon or a diatribe or a moral exhortation. Um, I, I seem to think that James' book is a rant. He talks about a lot of subjects for a very short period of time. Not all of them uh, flow together like the Apostle Paul's writings, for example, or even Peter and John. They have a very linear progression where they start and they start making their argument and they build their case until they come to their conclusion. An excellent example of that is the book of Romans. James writes a little different. James seems to write in short little blocks. He seems to be on a, on a rant. He's, he's telling the church that they need to be godly and that they need to obey Jesus and they need to pray 
because they live in such a wicked time. But James has been variously considered these things. His writing has a clear similarity to the preaching style of Jesus. For though James did not believe in his brother, he certainly was around his brother enough to pick up his way of speaking, his preaching style. And there are at least 15 allusions to the Sermon on the Mount in the book of James, and we'll pick some of those out as we go through the the series. Uh, James was likely there when Jesus was preaching his discourse on that mountain that day. And so James refers to a number of those things in his book. James has a distinctly Jewish flavor. And it shares some characteristics with the Old Testament wisdom literature. Some have called the book of James the New Testament book of Proverbs. And James kind of reads like the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs has a lot of individual Proverbs and passages that kind of stand alone. And not all of them have to do with the next. Now, there is certainly continuity, and there is no contradiction, but the, uh, the, the writing style and the way that it's laid out, it, it starts and stops. And you have to be very careful to make sure that you're not misinterpreting, misusing, misquoting the book of Proverbs, just like with the book of James. James, in his book, speaks of perseverance through trials. He encourages his audience to stand firm and to not be double-minded. James addresses Christian speech, and he confronts believers who use their tongue to lie, to gossip, and to tear down others. In his book, James often refers to the future judgment, and he uses that future judgment as motivation for exhortation. And I talked a bit about that Uh, Last week, when I talked about how the return of Christ is our purifying hope, the fact that Jesus is coming back one day motivates us to live ready and to keep every trace of sin and every everything that could corrupt and defile us out. And when we let it in, we quickly repent of it because Jesus is returning for a glorious church without spot. Or wrinkle. He's not coming for a legalistic church, okay? And that's not what I'm endorsing today. James is going to tell us that we all fall, we all stumble in many ways. We are human. But as we live this life, we need to rely on Jesus, trust in him, lean on him and his righteousness. And every time that we, we stumble, we don't stay down, but we stand back up and we keep on going. And so James speaks of perseverance encourages his audience to stand firm, knowing that Jesus is coming again one day. What does James say about God? Some people, like Martin Luther, didn't want the book of James included in the canon of Scripture because James never directly preaches the gospel. But if James is the earliest book to have ever been written, it stands to reason he's assuming that his audience has heard the gospel and was likely an eyewitness to it in many ways, especially because James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem where Jesus spent a lot of his time and where he was crucified, buried, and raised. And so it's likely that James assumed that that his audience knew the gospel, and so he didn't preach it directly, but he preached extensively about how the gospel is lived out in our everyday life. J. 
James professes in his book, though, that Jesus is God and co-authoritative with the Father. That's in James 1 and verse 1. James states that Jesus is the Lord of glory, chapter 2, verse 1. So James equates Jesus with God. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is God, and James affirms that. The eschatology of James, the, 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 the words that he speaks about the end times, the eschatology of James is centered on the coming judgment at the return of Christ. And those who persevere will be rewarded with a crown of life. And who is the crown of life? Jesus. Jesus is our reward. And so in order to receive that reward, we must persevere and those who do not persevere in such faith, James says, will ultimately be condemned. Throughout this series, we're going to be holding up a mirror to our lives. James calls the word of God a mirror. And whenever we read it, it's like looking in to a mirror. James holds up a mirror to a number of things in the Christian life. He holds up a mirror to our various trials. Anybody going through something today? Anybody facing trials? James holds up a mirror to our various trials, and he tells us that trials can be seen as an opportunity for spiritual growth and the strengthening of our faith. We don't have to enjoy our trials, but we can have joy in our trials, and the result of those trials can be the strengthening of our faith. When we're facing difficult times, we can actually trust God and seek his wisdom. And let me tell you, there's no one else that I'd rather trust when I face a trial. There's no other wisdom I'd rather have than Jesus. I'm trusting him, and I'm leaning on him. I'm letting him direct me by his spirit, and I hope you do the same. James holds up a mirror to our various temptations. Anyone ever been tempted? This morning, maybe? Temptation comes from within, not from God. James tells us that God does not tempt us. He is not a tempter, but it comes from within. And for the believer, that temptation doesn't come from our old nature. That nature is dead and gone. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. But you still have your old mind, don't you? You still have your old flesh, this bag of bones. You still have uh, to live in this world surrounded by sin. And so sin comes from without and from within, but it does not come from God. James tells us that God will give us the strength to resist temptation so that we might stay faithful to his will. There's a reason why God wants us to resist temptation. It's so that we can actually accomplish his will and purpose in our lives. He's already made us righteous. Giving in to sin is not going to cause you to lose your salvation. You have to resign that intentionally. But when you're bound by sin, constantly giving in to temptation, you're going to live so weak, you're not going to be able to accomplish God's purpose and will for your life. And so James tells us that God's going to give us the strength to resist temptation. James holds up a mirror to our religiosity. 
I said that James is often misquoted and misunderstood. James is often misused by the legalists among us. They love to go to James when he talks about faith without works is dead. And they like to point a finger at us who are struggling and say, you got to have something to show for your faith or you're not going to make it. James holds up a mirror to our religiosity. And when we talk about what true saving faith is, the works that accompany faith and the, the faith that produces good works, you're going to realize that if you've been using that verse that way, you've been using it wrong the whole time. James does talk about a pure religion. And he says that it is caring for those who are in need and avoiding the sins of the world. Religion is the external evidence of our inward holiness. Some of us have more evidence than others. But religion, pure religion, the outflow of what's been worked in us is evidence that God has transformed us. True faith leads to action for the good of others and the glory of God. Works don't accompany your faith so you can convince the person sitting two pews over that you're actually saved. That's not why works accompany your faith. Works accompany your faith to help others and glorify God. That is the purpose of good works. And if you have true saving faith, you won't be able to help but do the good works that come from it. James holds up a mirror to our tendency to show favoritism. Favoritism is a sin against God who is no respecter of persons. Partiality or favoritism leads to tribalism, to division and strife, which is something we see running rampant in the world today, and unfortunately, even in the church. Favoritism is the way of the world. It produces elites and everyone else. The kingdom of God is not the elite and everyone else, the high and the Lo, the kingdom of God is actually righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit for everyone. So James holds up a mirror to our tendency to show favoritism, and he holds up a mirror to our good works, and I've already mentioned this, but it bears repeating. Let me quote John Calvin and Martin Luther. John Calvin said that faith alone saves, but faith that saves is not alone. Faith alone saves. You're justified by faith. No work that you could ever do will justify you. Your best work falls way short of the standard of perfection required for justification. Only Jesus could meet that standard, and faith in Jesus is what saves you. But Calvin said that that faith in Jesus will not be alone. It will be accompanied by works, and Martin Luther said of the Christian faith that it is impossible for it not to be doing good things all the time. James holds up a mirror to our good works. He holds up a mirror to the way we talk. He compares the tongue to a bit in the mouth of a horse, a rudder of a ship. He compares the tongue to a fire. He compares it to untamed animals. He calls it a restless evil, a poison. He calls the tongue a tree and a spring. And we're going to talk extensively about that in this series. 
James holds up a mirror to the way we talk, and he says that believers should walk the talk using wisdom and self-control. It's one thing to talk it. It's another thing to walk it. James wants our walk and our talk to line up. And the only way that's possible is by using the wisdom of God. He says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God. We need the wisdom of God if we're going to walk the talk. And we need to use self-control, which is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. So we need the wisdom of God, and we need the Holy Spirit in our lives if we're going to walk the talk, if we're going to walk in the light. James holds up a mirror to the way we think. Some of us have some pretty stinking thinking. I include myself in that. There are two kinds of thinking, two kinds of wisdom that James talks about. There is what's called true wisdom that leads to good conduct, and there is earthly, unspiritual, demonic wisdom that leads to disorder and evil practices. The wisdom that we need in our lives, in our marriages, in our families, as we raise our children, whatever it is we're doing, whatever we find our hand to do, we need wisdom. And the kind of wisdom we need is true wisdom. Wisdom is not just intellectual knowledge, but it's the application of God's truth to our lives. James holds up a mirror to the judgments we make. Anybody ever been judgy? Nobody wants to admit it, but we've all done it. We've all passed a judgment that we were unqualified to make because we didn't have all the information. That's what's amazing about Jesus. He's omniscient. He knows everything. He's able to divide uh, intentions, and he's able to know the thoughts of man. He has all the information That's why James says that we are not to make judgments that we're unqualified to make. The only judgments that you can truly make are judgments about yourself against God's word. I had one amen. Thank you, Derek. The only judgments you're truly qualified to make are judgments about yourself against God's word. Okay, that's better. That doesn't mean you can't observe something, say, out in the world or in somebody else and, and, and say, okay, that doesn't line up with Scripture. But if they don't ask you for your judgment, you're treading on thin ice. Uh, if they don't ask you for it or uh, you, you give that judgment prematurely or whatever, uh, I, I, no, I won't use that word, okay? It could... Hit the fan. Okay? So make those judgments about yourself against the word of God. And God will give you the wisdom to be able to do it. James holds up a mirror to the judgments we make. There's only one lawgiver. Therefore, there can only be one judge. He is able to save and destroy. You see, you can pronounce all the judgments you want, but you can't save somebody. You can point all the fingers you want at other people and how they live and how they act and what they say and where they go, but you can't save them. So the point of judging them would be nil. That's why James wants us to come alongside and bear good works to help them. That's why he says, confess your sins one to another. Pray for each other. 
That's what he wants us to do. You don't need to waste your time judging people. Spend time praying for people. God is the one lawgiver, therefore he's the only one judge who can save and destroy. Christians need not be overly critical of others, but rather concern themselves with being doers of God's word. Uh, Two more things. James holds up a mirror to the things we boast about. The girls at their new school had to learn Ephesians chapter 2, 8, and 9 this week. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We have a tendency to boast. And James holds a mirror up to our boasting. Uh, James says that boasting about future plans while ignoring God's sovereignty is foolish and evil. Remember, James says, don't make plans for tomorrow to go here or go there. Only according to God's will will you do those things. And so James says, don't boast about your future plans. Uh, He says, boasting is arrogant. It's selfish. And boasting doesn't trust God. It trusts in yourself. If you're boasting in what you have or what you can do, you're trusting in yourself. You're leaning on your own arm And that will ultimately fail you. True believers have a humble and godly perspective. They acknowledge God's sovereignty, seek to do his will, and boast in the cross of Christ. So, before I talk about that last one, let me just recap. James, and in this series, holds up a mirror to our trials, our temptations, our religiosity our tendency to show favoritism, our good works, the way we talk, the way we think, the judgments we make, the things we boast about. And finally, James holds up a mirror to our prayer lives. James says that anyone who is in trouble should pray. And anyone who is happy should pray. James says, if anyone is sick, they should call the elders of the church to pray over them, to anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. James says that the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. James says that the Lord is the one who will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Jesus is our great physician. He's not just our physical physician. He's also our spiritual physician. He's able to renew our body and our spirit. He's able to heal our disease uh, and all of our infirmities. And he is able to heal our sin sickness. When we pray the prayer of faith, Jesus is the one who can raise us up and forgive us. In the book of James, James encourages believers to confess their sins for each other and to pray for each other so that they might be healed. The prayer of righteous people is a powerful and effective weapon against the plan of the enemy. It's hanging in my office now, but I remember as a young boy, my dad brought home a painting or a print of a painting from the Christian bookstore 
He hung it in the hall of our room, and it was in the hall of every home that we lived in. It was in the hall of our bedrooms, and it was a picture of a, of a father kneeling over the bed of his son with his hand on his shoulder, praying for his son. And the verse uh, inscription was, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. The best thing you can do, Dad, is pray for your family. Pray for your children. Hold them up in prayer. It's an effective weapon. You know, not, not all of us, you know, can send our kids to a Christian school. Not all of us can homeschool. Some of us have to send our kids to a public school system. Uh, but we can pray protection over them, over their hearts and over their minds, that the plan of the enemy would be thwarted. But that's going to happen through prayer most importantly, you can do lots of amazing things to disciple your kids and to, you know, to use a word that we like to use, indoctrinate them, and you should indoctrinate them in the word of God. You can do all those things, but if you don't pray for them, you're missing the most important and powerful link in that chain. James says the effectual fervent prayer of righteous men, of righteous dad, of righteous moms, of righteous women accomplishes very, very much. Amen. Overall, James emphasizes the importance of prayer in all circumstances of life, whether we're in trouble, whether we're happy or sad or sick or well. And James also highlights the power of prayer, especially when it is offered in faith and in true belief. Satan tempts us to avoid prayer because we believe that we have to have all kinds of words to say to God. The truth is God knows the intentions of our heart. God knows what we think. He knows what we have need of before we even speak it. So offer it in faith. Say it somehow, some way, with faith attached to it, and it will accomplish great things. What do you need today? What do you need to pray for? Are you in trouble? You know, if you're in trouble, Satan is going to lie to you and say, don't go to God for that. You didn't go to him when you weren't in trouble. But what makes you think you can go to him now that you are in trouble? Well, the book of James makes it very clear that when you're in trouble, go to God. Even if you didn't go to him when things were good, go to him now when things are bad. Do you need rescue from trouble? Go to God. Are you sick? Go to God. Are you struggling with unconfessed sin? Go to God. Are you confused about something in his word? Are you confused about something going on in your life? Bring it to God in prayer. Are you distressed? You see what's going on in our world and does it stress you out? Bring it to God in prayer. Are you impatient like me? Do you want it to be done now? Or better yet, yesterday, bring it to God in prayer. Ask him to teach you how to wait, to be anxious for nothing. But in all things, through prayer and supplication, make your requests known and let the peace of God guard your heart. Are you in financial need? Do you need a miracle in your bank account? God is the one who can provide for you. He's our gyra, our provider. He meets our needs, 
But as I asked you last week, are you willing and do you have enough faith to let God be the one who determines what it is you need? You see, it's easy to believe that God will supply all our needs according to his riches and glory as long as he provides the things that I say I need. It's easy to have faith for that. It's harder to have faith when God says, I'm going to supply all your needs and I'm going to determine what those needs are. It's hard to trust that. I'm not saying it's easy. And that was one of the things I said last week. There's some stuff in this book, I I don't like it. I don't like what it has to say because it means I got to do all kinds of changing to line up with it. But I'm convinced, I'm committed that this is God's objective standard for truth and revival is us reforming our lives to it and not stopping until we look just like Jesus. Whatever it is you need today, whatever it is you face, Take it to the Lord in prayer. Remember, James was a prayer warrior. His nickname was Camel Knees. Because of James' prayer life, listen to this, he experienced the Christian life differently because of it. He didn't have a different Christianity. There's only one way. He experienced it differently because of his prayer life. Prayer changes things particularly the one who is praying. Prayer changes the way we think about things, the way we react to things. Prayer changes us. And James experienced the Christian life differently because of his devotion to prayer. Need proof? Just compare his book to every other epistle in the New Testament. The letters of Paul and John and Peter They sound way different than the book of James. Does that mean James is contradicting them? Absolutely not. James is complimenting them. And he's coming at it from the perspective of a prayer warrior and someone who's devoted his life to prayer. He encourages us to face everything on our knees in prayer. In fact, The last thing he spoke when they were clubbing him and throwing stones at him was a prayer. James was always praying. Whatever he faced, he brought it to the Lord in prayer. Whatever you're facing today, face it on your knees in prayer. What? A friend we have in Jesus All our sins and griefs to bear What a privilege to carry Everything to God in prayer Oh What peace we often forfeit Oh, what needless pain we bear All because we do not carry Everything to God in prayer Have 
Find a solace there. 